want to spend a few moments this evening looking at what the scriptures say about Jesus' death on the cross and what an event that happened nearly 2,000 years ago has to do with you here today. The gospel is the good news of all that Christ has done in his work on the cross for you and I. Men and women for thousands of years now have been proclaiming, talking about, discussing, wondering, thinking upon the events which has led to us being here this evening. My aim in the next few moments this evening is to get you to see and to accept the fact that Jesus died for you. Here's what I mean. Far too often when I myself am thinking about the grace of God or about the forgiveness that we have in Jesus or about the power that we have to say no to our sins because of the Spirit, far too often I think of these terms and what they can do for other people. Seldom do I think about what they can do for me. When I see others who believe that God is only angry with them and not gracious, they think, I think to myself that they don't understand. They don't see, they don't know that God loves them. They don't understand that Jesus died for them. They don't believe that the gospel is for them. And yet when I look at my own life and consider my own sins, I often think in terms that make it seem that God is angry with me. When I consider all the ways in which I stumble, I often think in terms that make it seem as if Christ has not forgiven me. Here's what I'm getting at this evening. We often think that the gospel is something for other people, but not for ourselves. What I want to see tonight in the scriptures together for just a few moments is that the gospel is for you, friend. When you think of Good Friday, what comes to mind? What do you think about in terms of if I asked you who was in control on that fateful Friday? Was it Pilate? The Romans? The religious elites? The crowd? Do you think that perhaps Jesus bit off more than he can chew? You think that Jesus is a radical perhaps in over his head? A person who thought he could change the system only to become a victim to that system? Another question. What do you think happened when Jesus died? Was a mere man, innocent man, simply being put to death? Was Jesus only leaving for us an example of what sacrificial love looks like? That should be praised and perhaps imitated. What do you think of happened when Jesus died? This evening I want to lay before you just two things and then I will be out of your way. The first is that God was in control of all the events on that fateful Friday. God was in control of all the events on that fateful Friday. Number two, that Jesus died forsaken so that you and I can be finally forgiven. In our passage this evening, Mark chapter 15, we're going to pick it up in verse 16, but before we do, let me remind you where we are. 
Before this passage, Jesus has been taken before a sham trial of the religious elite, where Jesus was asked, who are you? Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God? To which Jesus truthfully and honestly answered, yes. Because of this, the religious elite was furious. They could hardly control their outrage. And because of this, they all agreed to the man that Jesus should be put to death. Jesus is then spit on, beaten, mocked, ridiculed. He's then taken the next morning to the, by these religious elite to Pilate so that the state could take care of the temple's dirty work. They took him to Pilate and said, this man needs to be killed for he is a criminal of the highest order. There in that confrontation with Christ, we see Pilate ask Jesus the question Mark's been trying to get you to ask the entire book of Mark. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus more or less gives the answer. He says, uh, you have said it. It's true. You see, Pilate was a wise man, though. He, he didn't want to go 12 rounds with the box, in the boxing ring with the temple elites. And so he offered to the crowd to let the, the crowd decide this, this fate of Jesus. He offered them freedom. And yet he didn't get back the answer that he thought the crowd would answer. Instead, the people demanded that Pilate release to them a real criminal back on the streets. Not knowing to respond, Pilate asked the crowd, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And their answer, crucify him. Pilate, realizing his mistake, but at this point too late, decides to wash his hands. No longer wanting to be involved, he gives the crowd what they want. He tells the soldiers to take Jesus out and to crucify him. We pick this story up in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak. And put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. In, this, in these verses we see the mockery of Jesus continues. They put Jesus in a purple cloak. And this purple of course symbolizing royalty. It would have been hard to come by. They wrap him up in it. They knew the charges against him. Were that he claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ. The, the one who would save his people. And so in their mockery they present him as a king. You can see in verse 17 that they, they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They, they saluted him. And then they continued to beat him and to spit on him and mock him. So I ask you, who is in control? It seems as if Jesus had perhaps other plans in which to change the new world order. It seems as if things have went horribly wrong, and, but yet Jesus... All the way back in Mark chapter 10, verse 33, had promised that this would be exactly what happens. Let me read it for you. Mark chapter 10, verse 33 says this. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus talking to his disciples. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Notice all of these things happened exactly according as Jesus said it would. In verse 34, that same passage, it says, Jesus talking to his disciples, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. 
You see, Jesus knew what was awaiting him. He knew. Jesus was not walking into Jerusalem unsure about the events that would unfold. He knew. I wonder this morning or this evening, how does that make you feel? How does it make you feel to know that Jesus understood the horrors he would endure, right? We often think of Good Friday as this, um, this, this thing, this, something horrible has happened, right? It's one of those things, one of these holidays that, right, it's not quite, I work today, I don't know about, I mean, imagine most of you work today. It's a holiday, like, is it, is it, is it, we should, should we celebrate or should we mourn? It's one of those ones that we're not quite sure what to do with. I wonder, how does knowing that Jesus knew make you feel? It's just change everything for us. On Good Friday, we, we realize it's mournful because Jesus died for our sins, for your sins. It's mournful for that, but, but, but notice Jesus here is not in mourning. He knew. Look at verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Read these next verses slowly. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. So here is Jesus carrying the cross beam that he would be hung on in just a little while to a hill right outside the city after being beaten within an inch of his life. And, and Mark is writing down this story for future generations to read, to know, to ask the question, is this Jesus real? Is he the Messiah. But it's interesting here because Mark is writing this down and he does something quite remarkable here. He actually names this stranger. He, he, he calls him in verse 21, right, a passerby, this Simon of Cyrene. And he not only names him, but he says that, oh yeah, by the way, Simon had two boys named Alexander and Rufus. This is quite remarkable. Let me tell you why. Many people have tried to claim that the Bible, the scriptures that we hold, were invented after the fact. The argument goes that this movement, this religion known as Christianity, caught on faster and wider than anyone could have imagined, anyone could have predicted. And in order for this movement to continue to gain steam, it needed to go back and kind of come up with some kind of origin story. Therefore, critics of the Bible say that the early church took bits and pieces from other religions in the region and other, other stories, other legacies, and kind of mingled them all together, mixed the pot all together, and said, voila, here's the Bible, here's Christianity. 
And this is why it's so important that Mark actually name drops here. Because if the early church was merely making this stuff up, it wouldn't use names. Why? Because, because names provide a way of verification. Not only does he give the guy's name, Simon of Cyrene, he also says, by the way, he has two boys, Alexander and Rufus. You see, Mark putting these names in here is a means of giving weight that what Mark is writing about has credible eyewitnesses of which the early church could go and ask these questions. But let me get back to my point that God was in control of the events on that fateful Friday. Mark mentions that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh in verse 23. This, of course, is an allusion to Psalm 69. And in Psalm 69, uh, we're told about a righteous man who suffers. A righteous man suffering. It says this in verse 16, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good, according to your abundant mercy to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. You see... What Mark is doing here when he's mentioning these details is he's letting you know that the story is culminating right here. More than just the wine mixed with myrrh, though, Mark also says in verse 24 that they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide who should take what. And so this here is a direct quotation from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 verse 18 says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast This psalm, verse Psalm 22, of course, is what Jesus quotes later on in this same passage, verse 34. Psalm 22 is another psalm like Psalm 69 where we're told of what? A righteous man suffering. Do you see what Mark is doing? He's pointing out to you, the reader, in real time. The connections between Jesus and these ancient writings, which would have been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's like Mark is watching the the, the crucifixion unfold with his Old Testament to the Psalms opened up and like, it's happening. It's happening. Right now it's happening. Do you see the righteous man suffering? It's all here. Friends, at no point on that faithful Friday did the train ever become derailed. Exactly the opposite's happening. God was in control of the events on that fateful Friday. Now I want to turn to the next section here. Jesus died forsaken so that you can be finally forgiven. Look at verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima shabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. 
And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were some also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This passage clearly explains the gospel in two movements. Each of these sections has three parts. There's two two sections here, verse 33 to uh, verse 36, and then verse 37 to verse 41. Each of these passages have three signs, three things, three parts that make them up. The first is each has a sign. Each has a sign. And then the second is each have a cry from Jesus. And the third is that each has a response from the people around the foot of the cross. In this first passage, we see that Jesus does die forsaken. Look again at verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And he goes on to say, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. You see, the sign of this, Jesus dying forsaken, is the darkness which covered everything. Friends, this is about 12 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and the dark rolls in. This was the sign. This was the sign symbolizing what? The wrath of God. The wrath of God which Jesus stood before in the garden and said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. This was the wrath of God, God's righteous anger. That's what the darkness represents here. It's a sign. You also see a cry, a cry from Jesus. This cry from Jesus is the forsakenness of bearing that wrath of God. See, Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? He realizes in that moment, at that point, he is drinking the cup of the wrath of God. But you also see this response. This response is one of mockery of Jesus. Because they mock Jesus, they remain under the wrath of God. You see, Mark wants you to see and picture yourself. You're going to see the next option in just a minute. You have two responses to Jesus, only two. Only two responses to Jesus. True of them, and this passage is also true of you in your life. Either your response will be what we see them doing here, which is mocking Jesus. Unbelief. They didn't believe what Jesus was saying was true. Or you can be like the Roman centurion. In the next section, we see that Jesus dies forsaken so that you and I can be forgiven. Look at verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in top from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in, in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. You see the cry in this passage, in this section, is Jesus' last before he dies. It's interesting that Mark says he doesn't say what he said. Does he? He just says that he uttered a loud cry 
But in the, in the Gospel of John, he tells us that Jesus' last words were what? It is finished. You see, what, Jesus, what John recorded Jesus saying is what Mark intends to paint the picture as here when Jesus cries a loud cry. Only this cry is different from the first of forsakenness. This is the cry of victory. You see, because Jesus has died in the place of sinners, bearing God's wrath, forgiveness and reconciliation to God are now made possible. That's the cry, the sign in this one. The sign is the curtain in the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. The the curtain, of course, symbolizes the separation between us and God. In the temple, there were two, two curtains, two curtains. One was at the entrance to an area of the temple known as the court of Israel. Only Jewish men were permitted beyond this point. The curtain would have been visible to anyone who went to the temple, Jew or Gentile. That's the first curtain. So, so you can imagine the temple in Jerusalem. If you were there, there would have been this temple, which is this uh, all sign, especially if you were an outsider. Women, forget it. You're not getting in there. Jewish men only have access beyond that point. But you go a little farther inside the temple. Let's say you're a Jewish man and you're allowed in. You see another curtain. This curtain, of course, would hang at the entrance of the Holy of Holy. This was the small sacred place symbolizing God's presence in the world. Only the high priest was permitted to enter. And at that, only once a year following a special sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. You read about that in Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, This was the special day in the Jewish religious calendar. Uh, uh, This Day of Atonement meant the day of dealing with our sin. And that's, that's what the sacrifice was for. Once a year they would sacrifice... So when Mark says here that the the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, he most likely would have been referring to this inner temple, this this place which separated the the presence of God from the rest of the world. The significance of Jesus' death then is that the once and for all atoning sacrifice for sin means that the access into the presence of God is no longer restricted to the high priest once a year. But that the presence of God is now open and unrestricted to all who believe in Jesus. That's that's the sign in this passage, the response. The response from the Roman centurion, notice, he would have been the one supervising Jesus' execution. And what does he do? His response, surely this man was the son of of God. This is a response of repentance and faith. You see, in your life, you have two options when approaching Jesus. Either one of mockery and unbelief or one of true heartfelt repentance and faith. It's interesting that Mark records the presence of a number of women watching from, uh, from a ways away. Like the centurion They believe in Christ. They believe in what he has done. They believe in what he said. They believe in who he is. Mark's reference to the women as witnesses is powerful evidence, again, that this is all eyewitness testimony of what actually happened. You see, in Jesus' day, the testimony of a woman was invalid. And so if Mark were merely making this up, he would not have included women as his witnesses. 
and yet he does. I'm going to close with this. This is the high point of Mark's entire gospel. We've been preaching through this book for the last three years, and I just think it's uh, amazing. The Lord does uh, let us end. Uh, we're going we're gonna to cover the ending of Mark uh, on Sunday morning, but here we are, the high point of the entire book. Look again at verse 39. We see Jesus is crucified as God's Messiah, King. Verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is the key to the entire Gospel of Mark. Recall the opening line of Mark's Gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. You see, Mark's purpose in this entire book has been to set before you the evidence leading you along to answer the question, who is Jesus? And he's leading you to this place right here, to the Roman centurion saying, surely this is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. You see Peter's confession at the midpoint of the book where he says, do you guys remember what, what, what Peter says? Anybody remember off the top of your head, want to shout it out? It's okay, we in church. What's he say? Nobody wants to be brave enough. He says, he says this, uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 20, he says, uh, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do men say that I am? Right? And then they, they give a couple different answers. Maybe some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? What's Peter's response? You are the Messiah. It's the midpoint of Mark's book. It's a significant step in understanding who Jesus really is. But it's not until we understand that not only the Messiah died on the cross, but that God's Son died on the cross. Do we fully understand it? Why he died. Why did the Son of God die on the cross? Not only when we truly understand this, do we understand who Jesus really is and what really believing in Him actually means. You see, the Roman centurion's confession, surely this man was the Son of God, is the high point in the entire book. Mark states it at the beginning of the book. This is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And you pick it up in Peter's response in the midway point of the book, chapter 8. He says, you are the Messiah. That piece together with the centurion's understanding that you are the Son of God, do you get the full picture of what Mark wants you to see? You see, Peter's confession immediately follows the healing of a blind man in, in uh, chapter 8. The point is that spiritually, Peter's eyes have been opened to see who Jesus is. Here, we see the centurion that it's, it's important to know that it's, it's when he saw how Jesus died, right? important. When he saw how Jesus died, the manner in which he breathed his last, that he understands who Jesus really is. It was Peter, after the healing of, uh, of a blind man, that, that Peter's eyes began to be open to see who Jesus is. The healing of blind Bartimaeus at the end of chapter 10 indicates that, that Bartimaeus is a, a model disciple who sees Jesus and loves him dearly. Here in Mark 15, the centurion sees who Jesus is. You see, this is important for you and I because real understanding of Jesus' identity is not something 
that you and I can do for ourselves. It takes a miracle from God to reveal the truth of who Jesus is to us. The fact that this understanding is given to a Roman centurion who supervises Jesus' execution is extraordinary. God's grace and mercy are extended even to those who executed Jesus. Peter was a Jew. The Roman centurion is a Gentile. All of this points to one thing. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done is for you. It's not merely for other people. It's for you. The gospel is for everyone. So when we come to Good Friday, what do we think about in terms of who was in control that day? And, and the second question is, what was Jesus accomplishing in his death on the cross? It was forgiveness for us. I pray that as we leave this place tonight and as we uh, go about our days tomorrow and come back on Easter morning, I pray that we would reflect on this. We would truly look inside our lives and realize that the gospel affects every aspect of our life. That the gospel is not meant for somebody else and not for you. That the grace of God is not meant for someone else but not for you. That the forgiveness that is found in Christ is meant for somebody else but not for you. And that the, the power of the Spirit is not meant for somebody else but meant for you. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you tonight. Lord, as we reflect upon the power of the gospel to change lives, Lord, as we consider who you are, that you are both the chosen one, the the Messiah, the Christ, who will save his people from their sins, you are also the Son of God. God in the flesh, God with us. Lord, you walked our dusty roads. You felt the heat of the noonday sun. You felt the sting of betrayal. You know what it is to go hungry, what it is to lose, what it is to grieve and mourn. Lord, you walked into Jerusalem knowing that you would be put to death. Jesus for us stood in our place before the wrath of God. Father, I pray, Lord, that right now, those in the room who have never understood this and never accepted this, that you would change their heart. You would open their eyes, give them eyes to see, minds to know, and hearts to love. Father, we look forward to celebrating coming back on Sunday morning and celebrating all that uh, the resurrection means for us and how it changes every aspect of our lives from here on out. Father, I pray you would go with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.